This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 349th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which this week is brought to you by Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Recipient of six Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Variety Talk Series and Outstanding Writing for a Variety Talk Series. For your consideration, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, new weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most interesting and exciting young talents in Hollywood today. He is the son of Egyptian immigrants, and while grappling with how to conduct his life as an Arab Muslim millennial living in America— became an actor, stand-up comedian, and eventually the co-creator, executive producer, co-writer, and star of Hulu's Rami, a semi-autobiographical show which the New York Times has described as, quote, a quietly revolutionary comedy, close quote, which was honored with a Peabody Award earlier this year, and for which he personally won the Best Actor in a Comedy Series Golden Globe Award earlier this year, and is currently in the running for both the Best Actor in a Comedy Series and Best Directing for a Comedy Series Emmy Awards. Rami Youssef. Over the course of our conversation, the 29-year-old and I discussed the evolution of his relationship with his faith, the early emergence of his passion for storytelling and comedy, how, within just a few years, he graduated from a small part on a Nick at Night show to anchoring an edgy show of his own, the second season of which dropped during the pandemic and, like the first season, clocked in with an impressive 97% favorable rating on Rotten Tomatoes, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rami, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to see you. You have no reason to remember this, but I actually met you before I had seen your show or knew anything about you. I, I should have felt luckier than I did. I didn't realize that this was at the upfronts, um, the the year going into the first, I guess it would have been right a, around the time of the first season or before, I, I'm trying, May yeah. 20, maybe 19? In New York. Yeah, so... Uh, in New York, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that was a pretty, pretty cool room. I mean, that was like Hulu's big coming out of all their uh, all their great talent, and I, I just didn't know uh, how lucky I was at the time. Oh my god, I've caught up and <laughs> happy to speak with you. So, um, <laughs> on this podcast, we always begin with just uh, a few basics for people who may not know. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? And I just want to ask before you answer that, if if you wouldn't mind setting up what I find to be one of your funniest stories about how you of all people, grew up with a photo of Donald Trump on your home wall. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very, um, the, the, the answer to all those questions, um, yeah, really leads back to that photo. Um, it, it, and, you know, I grew up, um, I grew up in New Jersey, but I was born in New York, in, in Queens. And um, my grandparents, my mom's parents were, were in Queens and, and uh, my grandfather's still there. 
But we went to Jersey and my mom had a master's in French, but she really kind of dedicated her life to, to having us. You know, um, my grandfather was a, an interpreter for um, the Arab League and then the United Nations. And so they were traveling a bunch and, and it's kind of what brought them to New York. And my mom was kind of like, okay, cool. I kind of got to travel a lot as a kid and do all that. And, and I, want to, I want to raise my kids. And my father was a, he, he, he came to America, uh, he was a travel agent in Cairo. And then he would kind of show Americans the pyramids and stuff, you know, and, and so his English was really good. And then he had met people who he'd given tours to who were always like, hey, come visit us, you know, sometime in America. And, and so there were kind of like some real, some real characters that he came to visit. Like, I think the first place he landed was Montana. <laughs> and then, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. And then um, started working as a bus boy um, in hotels, then eventually became a hotel manager at the plaza uh, and, and worked for Trump. And and so we we had this <laughs> this photo, um, yeah. Oh man! Well, so that <laughs> that's uh, you can't. That's tr- what do they say? Stranger than fiction, right? So uh, truly. But uh, so you for people who uh, it, it, we're walking the line, I guess, in this conversation between people who have seen and are totally immersed in the world of the TV show, Rami, and people who we want to kind of tease it for. So I guess one thing I would say, you know, this is a show um, in which we see kind of the identity dilemma of an Arab Muslim growing up in America. And that while the guy you are playing, as I understand it, is is certainly not you, you obviously shared quite a bit of things, experiences in common with him. And so one of them, I guess, that I would be interested to know is just what role did religion play in your own life growing up? Did it fluctuate in the way that we see it do with quote unquote Rami on Mm. the show in terms of, you know, just deciding where you fit in it all? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that we grew up and I think a lot of immigrants can grow up this way, but there was this panic to, we don't want to lose where we came from. We don't want to lose who we are. And so I think for probably the first 10 years of my life, my parents would only speak to me in Arabic. You know, it's like, it's like we, we need to make sure that you get it down. And then at a certain point when they'd been here kind of long enough, they even started switching into English. But that was something it's like, okay, we're going to hold on to that. We're going to hold on to culture and we're really going to hold on to faith. And And so... I I think the way that I grew up with it was kind of interesting because I knew at a certain point I could tell even early on, I was like, some of this, I don't know what part of it is the religion, what part's the culture. And I think that that's so much of what the character is trying to kind of parse through as well is like, what is hearsay or what is kind of tradition and what is actually the spiritual journey? And those things get really conflated. I did feel that in my life. I could see that kind of in my family where I'm like, wait, is that, is that the Quran or is that like some, one of our uncles in Egypt? Like, like what, where does that rule come from? Where does that principle come from? Like, is that actually like, you know, is that actually our tradition or is that, um, you know, something from this family? And so I think there was definitely a confusion in that in real life. And that's something that, um, is rooted in the, in the character. But I also remember my dad, um, my dad is also the guy who like the only sibling that came to America of his family. And so he, he's the kind of dude who was like, look, like I want you to make your own choice. And my job is to kind of show you the religion and then you're going to do what you want to do. And I know you're going to do what you want to do. And I think that kind of mentality around it made me feel like it was my choice. And, and, I, and I really did want to. I really felt connected to fasting and praying and, and really kind of knowing that there's kind of something else that that always felt really real to me from a young age. Now, where I know you were also separately in some places, if not from your dad, but elsewhere, getting the message and the way you've put it was, quote, the only messaging I was hearing around faith was you need to be perfect or you can leave, close quote. Now, again, as you're saying, that wasn't necessarily coming at home, but that's something that I, you know, I, I think anyone of any religion can maybe relate to like is, I, I I'm Jewish and I think is it hypocritical of me to go to synagogue on the high holidays when I'm pretty worthless the rest of the year in terms of my observance and it sounds like in your own way there were questions of degrees right about mm-hmm. is it how committed or lax can you be without totally 
canceling your your other contributions out, right? Well, well, to be clear, the messaging from my dad was you have a choice to be perfect or imperfect. So so that that was that was the that was the, <laughs> that was the that was the um that was the, you know, allotted freedom, which is, you know, do you want to um you know, fully submit or, 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 um, you know, be a heathen. Uh, he, no, he, look, he, I think, I think my parents always struggled with, um, I I do think that they, and, and I can see it from their response to the show, even though they wouldn't clearly kind of tell me that they're, they're, more open to how things are interpreted. I, that wasn't really the messaging so much, but but it kind of was how they lived. Where it's like, okay, like you know, we're we're, we're trying to be good people, and we are going to have slip ups, and we're going to have faults, and we're trying our best, and we're doing what we can do. Um, but I, I felt that you know, even from that quote, yeah, that's the thing that I would feel when I would go to um, Arab Muslim Sunday school. You know, that's the thing that I would feel when I was kind of looking at the way our community was talking publicly because there's there's a certain dialogue that happens in the in the public space and then there's a certain reality that happens privately and i think that's really what our show is trying to dissect and that's the kind of um that's the kind of discourse that for our communities hasn't happened under any sort of pop culture lens in, in America, you know, we, we haven't had the opportunity to even have it through music, you know, cause I, I, I talk about this with a lot of my friends who are in like, like the black communities are really open to not only through TV and film kind of dissecting where they're at, um, but through music, you know, it's like, it's like, there's this like NWA comes out and they're like, oh my gosh, we're like, what are we getting into here? And there's all these conversations happening. And in this weird way, it's, it's like, yeah, we're doing that with this like Hulu show for the, it's, it's, and it's not the same thing. Obviously the whole media landscape is different, but in, on a level, yeah, there's certain things that are kind of coming up that, that haven't. And, and we're, we're, we're excited to kind of be part of that. So another thing that comes up in the show that I want to ask you about, and just in terms of your own life was September 11th. I'm a few years older than you, but I was also in school at at that time. And I'm sure we had very different experiences. And the way you talk about it on, on the show is just that there was sort of a before and after for you forget about America at large, which certainly Mm -hmm. changed and all of the, and the world. But can you just explain how, your own life was impacted by 9-11. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, one you know, the name of one of the first World Trade Center bombers was Ramzi Youssef, you know? And so, you know, mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that you can't really, um, you're already kind of, for me in the town that I grew up in, one of like two Arab families. So it's already, it's already weird. You already don't really hear your language a lot. You already don't feel like there's, a reference point for where you come from and your faith that you're seeing publicly. And then suddenly this is the only reference point. And I think what we really kind of dig into with the show and what I'm always interested in digging into with stand up is less like the world kind of turning on, on our communities. Cause we all kind of know the reality of that, but I think it's more the damaging thing that it does when you're a kid and, and you, you grow up with, um, a self-doubt of, of your own identity, faith, origin of your own family, where you kind of uh, start to feel like, is everybody right? And we're wrong, you know? And, and, and so it's just, there's kind of this like crack in, 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 in how you perceive yourself. And, and that's the, um, that self fear is more interesting to me than the outward fear. Cause outward fear, people are going to be afraid of everything, you know, like that's just kind of, that's the name of the game when it comes to politicizing and, 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 and the way communities kind of look at each other, but the self fear, and again, not unique to, um, to our communities, obviously. I mean, I could only imagine growing up black in this country and seeing the way that black people are covered in the news and are portrayed and, and what that does on a very internal level. Well, in terms of, yeah, I want to ask you about just external depictions because I know that throughout the rest of your childhood, you've, you've talked about the fact that there were some people who handled the depiction of Arabs or Muslims in uh, ways that you found to be admirable. I think you've talked about Jon Stewart as one of those. On the other hand, you and I both grew up with 24 and Homeland and some of those other things. And so I just wonder if you can talk because, you know, as you say, Rami is different than anything we've really seen on American television. Can you talk about what was on American television before Rami for 
an Arab Muslim growing up in America? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, uh, from the point of view of a kid, you, it's even hard to like, I was talking about, it's kind of hard to claim Aladdin because you'd be like, well, oh, where he's, where's, where's he from? And they'd be like, Agrabah. And you're like, oh, that's not real. You know, like, like, like you can't figure <laughs> out like what, <laughs> you're like, is he, could we say? And you know, yeah, I don't know. Probably not. But he's blue, right? It's like, he's got a blue friend <laughs> and you're like, ah, yeah, yeah. all right, well, I guess that's a, that's a strike. Um, there's not a ton, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to even, it's, it's the ones you talked about, obviously. And, and, and I always kind of say like, it, I haven't seen more than the first season. The, the, my biggest frustration with Homeland is how good it was. <laughs> it's a great show. <laughs> it's so good. I remember like, that is the definition of guilty pleasure where you're like, ah, oh, man, this is some really good propaganda. I mean, like they, they have done just like an amazing job at, uh, completely dehumanizing us and making us look like animals. Like, wow. Um, you know, way to go. But yeah, they're, they're just, just avoid, you know, definitely avoid in terms of nuanced public discourse. And then like in, in media, um, yeah, we would always kind of like grasp at stuff. Like I remember when the film America came out in, in, you know, that was a good, great Sundance movie. And that was kind of like a good point to be like, Oh, cool. Here's something, you know, and Shereen Debus, um, has directed, you know, six, six episodes of our show now, which is awesome. So, yeah. so it's kind of, it's a growing community. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your, the roots of your interest in both storytelling and then sketch comedy, because I think, um, just, you know, it started pretty early and evolved. I don't want to go beyond, let's say beyond high school yet, because that's a whole separate question I'm going to ask you, but up until high school, what were, what was your involvement with storytelling and, and comedy? I mean, I had a camera really early on that was like a big fascination for me. I want to say it was like third or fourth grade I got one. And I remember just really having fun going around the neighborhood making things. And, and um, you know, we had the old Windows Movie Maker and, and just so slow, everything's slow. The viewfinder's black and white. It's just you spend hours doing it. But that was, I really spent a lot of time doing that at, a, at an early age. And I, and I really, my uncle, just the uncle that, shows you stuff you're not supposed to see. We'd go see my grandparents in Queens and, and, and he lived with them and, and we'd just go in, in, in his room, me or me and my sister and, and just Carlin records. Like we're just listening to Carlin and watching. I remember he showed me Pink Floyd's The Wall, the movie. And I'm like, whoa, like this is like so, you know, <laughs> why am I watching this? And I got nightmares, but I'm also laughing. And, and so it was kind of this, and he played the saxophone too. And, and it was, I remember just being a kid and, and his room, you know, I was just like, whoa, this is like, this is a vibe. You know, he'd like, he'd sneak cigarettes and light incense and he had his sax and, and we're listening to music and comedy. And so that, that was really like, um, very influential for me to kind of feel like, oh, there's this person in my family that's, he's an artist, you know I mean? He, 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 he really is the funniest person I know. And, and so that was kind of my intro into stuff. And, and then, yeah. And then it kind of ramped up going into high school. Well, and, and in high school, so that's where sketch comedy enters the picture. Like how did that yeah. Come about. Were you were you just a, a funny guy to begin with? I don't even know that I viewed myself as funny. I think I just kind of had a knack for making, like knowing how to make a thing. Like I I, I went into TV production class because you know you're trying to like stack electives and and I knew like <laughs> okay I I know like I loved making things um, and I can kind of go into this and and this is better than than most things and and there I kind of started to to hook up with. My buddy Jonathan Braylock, my buddy Steve Way, who, who's on Rami now, and actually me and Jonathan and, and Steve are are developing a show for Steve right now. You know, so so it's that original crew from high school. We're we're creating this 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 other show, which is really cool. Um, our buddy Kyle College too. We 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 all started um, making things, um, and really we were inspired at the time by the sketch scene that was happening in New York. John was a couple years older than us. So we met him. We were freshmen. He was a senior. Then he goes off to NYU Tisch and he's like, yo, there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's Derek Comedy. There's um, Hammercats. There's Britannic. And so we're watching all these dudes, you know, Donald Glover, Nick Kocher, Brian McElhinney. We're seeing them do all, and Jenny Slate at the time. It's like this heyday for yeah. sketch. And I remember we we walk into UCB. Um, I was like 16, I think. or like I, Again, I went to UCB 16, 17. I don't know. Like, and I'm watching this stuff. 
And then at a certain point, I saw Jenny Slate's one-woman show, and she was doing live performance and then intercutting with video. She was kind of playing all her family members. She's doing this like, wow, this is right before she gets on the SNL. And then I see it and I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. Like we, we've been making videos. We've been wanting to do live stuff. And so we, we really were, we were inspired. We were just really inspired by, by that scene. And, um, we really hit it, hit it really hard. Amazing. So there is, I guess at that point, still the expectation at home though, that you're going to go off to college and whatever else you do, that's going to, that is going to be a central focus of yours. So can you just set up what you're days came to look like when let's say you're 19 i believe still living in new jersey but commuting into new york and yeah. you have i guess by that point met somebody else who is now on rami who was a, a an older influence in terms of getting into the you know more just straight acting right yeah so i um i i end up doing this thing the arab american comedy festival which is funny because I, it wasn't even fully on my radar. And then Jonathan was, you know, he would always be online looking for stuff for us to do. We're trying to get into sketch festivals and do all these things. And he was like, oh, you should like look at this thing. And I looked at it, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to go into that. And so I, I go there and, um, and I meet Leif Knackley who, who um, on Rami plays my uncle Nassim. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he, you know, we do the first, the, I do the first festival and, and pretty immediately he's just like, hey, you, you really need to train because you could do it. He's like, you could like he, and he just like blinded me with like, you need to go to the school. You need to go to the school. And, and it's funny because there's expectation from my parents of like, you know, you need to get into law school, but it's also almost my own expectation. Cause I have no frame of reference of like anyone succeeding in film and TV. This isn't, this isn't a thing that feels real to me. I'm kind of feeling like, Oh, can I get away with doing this for six more months? Like before real life starts, and I, and I kind of so it almost be these like six month, one year cycles of like, oh man, like all right, maybe I can just get like, yeah, yeah, we'll do a run of one more show we wrote, you know, because Jonathan and I would just keep writing sketch shows and be like, all right, yeah, yeah, well, let's see if we can run this one at you know at the People's Improv Theater, and then you know, and then I'm gonna have to figure out a, a, a real job. So so it kind of like gets to this point where where he he's pressuring me to go to William Esper Studio, and I'm like, dude, I um I can't afford it, and he's like, well you know, you, I see you make these videos come and we'll work something out. You can make videos for the studio. Cause William Esper, who he, he was one of the last living people and, and he just passed God rest his soul, but he was one of the last living people to study with Sanford Meisner. Yeah, and he yeah. had all this knowledge about working with, with, with Sanford Meisner. And so, so, so Lath is like, I want to document this and I want to capture this, not just for the website, but just kind of for history. And so we would do this, you know, I would go to the school, we'd do the classes and then we'd link up with Bill Esper on, on random weekends. And we would just roll the camera on him and ask him questions. And we have all this footage of him talking about the process and history. It was just like a wild, like, just That's the crazy. Amazing. I didn't, yeah, yeah. I didn't really understand the gravity of it at the time. And, uh, and, and now I look back and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And, and it allowed me to go to the school and it allowed me to kind of juggle that. And, and so I was kind of, yeah, I had a crazy situation because it was like, I'd wake up, I went to Rutgers in Newark and I chose the Newark campus so I could be close to New York. So I wake up, I go do some classes and then I commuted into the city. I had a job at the Apple store. I'd go work a shift at the Apple store and then I'd leave that. And then I'd go do a night class at William Esper. And then by the time I finished that and then get some food with, you know, my classmates, I'm like running to Penn station to grab like an 1130 or midnight train kind of before, <laughs> before you miss it, go home, sleep five, six hours, and then just like get back to class. It was, it was pretty much like a pretty wow. wild, pretty wild period of, of, of my life. Yeah. And now for somebody, I know this, as you say there, that you could probably watch hours of footage and not give a complete answer to this next question, but what is the gist of the Meisner technique for somebody who doesn't know about it? You know, it, at its simplest, and, and this isn't, you know, I'm not going to give a great explanation, but I, I think that at its simplest, it was like, how do you operate from imaginary circumstances? And, and, and in order to best create those imaginary circumstances, it's about kind of grounding yourself in your actual emotions. And so it's less like I'm going to cry in this scene as I think of like the death of my grandmother, because if you only use the death of your grandmother, 
it'll expire at a certain point. At a certain point, you'll have processed it. But if you can be in touch with that emotion, that base fear, that base loneliness, which will always exist, like we'll never really get rid of it. But if you can tap into that and then link that to imaginary circumstances, then you have something that um, that never runs out. And that was always kind of the, um, to me, the boiled down premise. Um, and it really excited me because it, you have to strip yourself down in that kind of work. And it made me a comedian, actually. Like, I don't think I was one before I did Meisner. And then I did Meisner and I was like, oh, now I know. Like, I was doing comedy to cover up my feelings. Now I actually know what feelings I was trying to cover up. I didn't even know what they were. And now that I know them, now I know how to write to them. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. So at a certain point, I get, well, for, somehow you're also fitting in auditions, I guess, you know, professional auditions in that, crazy schedule. And I believe that the thing that really maybe led you to, I don't know if, if this is directly what led you to lead, to stop the, the school portion of your, of your day, but you land a, a, a part in LA for the first time. Can you set that up about just what led to you leaving school, how that was received at home and then head out West? So the short, the shortest the shortest version of kind of a long answer is I was doing all these things and I don't think I was doing them particularly well. Like I, I'm definitely like going to all these places, but I'm totally failing classes at Rutgers. I, I even like crammed in a UCB sketch writing class that I got kicked out of because I, I showed up late too many times. And it was like it was like the third late. Like I remember showing up. I had printed all these sketches I wrote at the Rutgers Newark Library and then I jumped on the train and I showed up, you know, 20 minutes late with a stack of scripts and I'm like, I wrote the thing and they were just like, yeah, you, you gotta go. <laughs> like we have a strict UCB tardy policy. So I, I get kicked out of this sketch class, but I'm super stressed. At, at a certain point, I got, um, I got this thing called Bell's Palsy, which, um, you know, half your face, you basically lose control of like, there's 37 muscles on each side of the face. And, and yeah, they, they kind of go dormant. And so some people get it and they'll wake up and, you know, they have it for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. I ended up having it for six months. And, and it was kind of this like really formative, like time of my life. It was after I'd gone to Esper, like just, you know, I, I it was really around when I started Esper, maybe a couple months after. And so I kind of had this decision to make, I kept going to acting class, but I wouldn't, perform. I was just watching, which I think was probably very beneficial for me because a lot of times when you have to perform in an acting class, other people are up, but you're just thinking about like when you're going to go up. And so I kind of had this like window of time where, oh, I'm like, I'm just here. I don't have to have stress about performing. Like I'm just going to watch. I learned a lot. But basically when that ended, when I it was able to kind of, you know, get healthy, I kind of used that with my parents to be like, well, look, I got this thing because I was so stressed out. <laughs> they don't know what causes it. <laughs> they don't know what causes it, but stress is one of the factors. And so they never would have let me drop out of college. But I think because they had seen, um, you know, they'd seen me like sick for, for uh, the better part of a year. They, they kind of were like, all right, well, let's not stress them out. Otherwise, it might happen again. <laughs> so I, that was like in December and, and in um, of my... I want to say it was like my fifth semester. It was in December and then I I left school and I was doing auditions as I got better. And then, yeah, I, I booked this. I, I think like two months after I, I gotten better, I booked a small part on an MTV show. It was like a one-liner. And Mark Hirschfeld, the casting director, then like four months later brought me in for, um, yeah, this show. He was like, hey, come read for this thing. And, and again, I kind of show up late, disheveled, half memorized. And I kind of read it and he's like, hey, hey, look, just go work on it in the hallway, come back in. And I come back in and we do it. And um, and I'm like, dude, are you sure you want me to do this? It's written for like a 50 year old guy. And he's like, no, 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 I think you have a read on it. And I'm like, okay. And so I go out and I come back and I just kind of do my thing. And I'm improvising a bunch. And um, yeah, that happened. And then I left school. I think like that happened early December. I left school by the end of December. And then mid January, yeah, just get a call. Hey, can you fly to LA? And I go, I read for it. And then by, um, yeah, by April, I was living in LA and shooting this show. This show was on Nick at night, right? This is See Dad Run. You, so you're 20 years old, you arrive in LA, you're living alone for the first time. You're shooting this on the Paramount lot. And you've talked about the fact that aside from just this being a pretty kind of heady thing to begin with, you're still, you know, there's still this 
part of your life that's always been there involving your religion where you're, you've told this story that I, I wonder if you can share again or maybe expand about where you're on the this, this oldest of the Hollywood lots, stopping as you do five times a day to pray and thinking, has anyone else at Paramount ever done this, right? I mean, this and, and how and how to balance these two different lives you're living, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. That's um, I. Yeah, it was a very distinct thing of kind of I go to my trailer and, 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 and pray and, and I'm thinking, I'm sure someone else has done this at this lot, but I just don't know who, you know, and, and I have. And there hasn't been anything made on this lot that that speaks to the the reality of not only my life, but so many people around the world. Right. I mean, and I think people forget that the entire world watches the things that come out of the Paramount lot. And and so there's this uh, this thought that hits me at the time uh, really clearly, even before I booked the role where I, I, I knew because it had been pouring into my sketch, I knew I wanted to make something that filled that void, you know, that we're talking about that I had always seen. And I never thought I would even get close enough, though, to do it in a real way. So I'm, again, I'm doing sketch. I'm even going to acting school in this kind of feeling of, well, I'm just expressing myself. I'm just having a good time. But my goals were very simple. It was like, I really want to be on the performer page of the UCB theater website and, and do, and do a show at their theater, which if you haven't been to the original one in New York is under a grocery store, you know, it's it's (laughs) under the Gristides in Chelsea. And like, that is to me, that's Hollywood. You know what I'm saying? Like that is top of the the mountain. Pinnacle is like, there would be a line that wrapped around the block. And I remember the first time I did a show there and I remember seeing that line for the show I was doing. And I was like, that's it. I made it. It's over. And then, and then this idea of being on television and film in a real way didn't compute for me until I'm, I'm, I'm almost getting this role. And it, and it kind of metabolizes for me where I'm like, oh man, I actually have an opportunity to like scale this thing I've been doing in a way that I never thought I could. And if I can get into this, and I remember like before booking the role, I'm like, if I can just get this thing, I know it's not the thing that I want, but I know it'll get me to the thing that I want, this would change everything, and it did. And and it was the, it was the best it was the best first working experience I think I could have had. Well, and to your point about sort of thinking beyond that, even while you were there, I think you shadowed the writers' room, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that would that would seem to be a sign that you were you had grander ambitions. It was really cool. Um, the showrunners on the show, Nat Bernstein, Mitch Catlin were really kind to me. And I, I was kind of the, uh, everyone knew I was the only person in the cast who moved to be in the show. You know, I, I everyone's kind of been living in LA and I'm, you know, I've been in New Jersey and, and I kind of show up. And so I'm kind of the annoying dude who's just like lingering around and I'm like, is everyone going home? Like, come on guys, let's like, <laughs> let's keep hanging out. And, 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 um, and so, I asked Nat and Mitch, I'm like, hey, could I kind of like sit in on the room sometimes and check out what's going on there? And they were like, yeah, come on. And and, and I would just kind of, all the writers on that show were some of the best people I've ever met. And I'd just go kick it in their office. And, you know, and and and, and I actually, at the time when I was there, I, um, I pitched Nickelodeon because I was... Um, I was a bit character, you know, I was a series regular, but I'm in maybe some episodes, I'm only in one scene. And so I pitched me and one of the uh, office PAs, this this woman, Emily Brandstetter, we pitched Nickelodeon because we're sitting talking and we're like, we want to write something. And so we pitched them uh, that I'm going to host a late night show out of my trailer because I have so few scenes and like, and like the whole premise of this, like, and we're like, this could be a late night show for Nickelodeon where you have this actor that is on Nickelodeon, but no one knows who he is because he has so few scenes. So he starts his own late night show out of his trailer and they bought it. Um, and, and so we start making it, but they never, they never, they never like went through with it. I think we just, that's so cool know, though. I didn't know. Kinda, I never heard that. Yeah. It was kind of like my first experience of like selling something that goes nowhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were like, <laughs> Cool. They're like, yeah, we'll buy it, and then they, and then we never did anything with it. But <laughs> we just That's got like classic. it was it was kind of a it was it was kind of a, a so I was just kind of scheming, yeah, at the time, like what 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 could happen? Well, let's talk. So you know, as you say, you're new to LA. You don't necessarily have that much else going on outside of this smaller part on the show. Two of the other ways you filled your time that I think ended up being very important in the subsequent years involved both your comedy and your faith. So what 
What were you now venturing into that you hadn't done before here now that you were in L.A. in terms of, I believe, stand-up and maybe a new place of worship? Yeah, it was... um... I, I kind of felt the gap of, okay, all my sketch partners are in New York and stand up was something I would very softly dabble with in New York, but I really didn't want to um, commit to it too much. I, I, I really felt like I, I felt like I was, no, I'm just an actor, you know, like I don't want to like step into that, but then I'm in, I'm in LA and, and I really feel like, okay, I want to, um, I want to perform and I don't want to just like have it confined to this show. So I start doing stand up, and, and actually the first open mic I went to in LA was with um, Ari Kacher, who I had been introduced to by my friend, Josh Rabinowitz. And we, you know, Josh, me, Josh Rabinowitz, Kevin Barnett, we kind of were in this like comedy scene together in New York. And then I come and I, and I see Ari and yeah, we started doing open mics and stuff. And, 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 you know, and then he ends up being a co-creator on, on the show with me. Um, so that was a really cool relationship. And then and then I also kind of find I'm in Koreatown. You know, when I moved to L.A., I, I got this apartment in Koreatown because it was close to Paramount. And, and what I didn't realize was it was um, oh, I might even just be putting this together right now as we're talking. But it was <laughs> it, it, it was like almost equidistant from that apartment, the distance to Paramount and then the distance to basically the the mosque in Hollywood, which is in Koreatown on, on Vermont. So it's, it's an, yeah, it's, it's probably almost the same distance from where I was living. I was living on sixth and St. Andrews, a really loud street. And I, and I, and it was crazy. It was, it was this like, um, (laughs) it it was, it was, yeah, it was kind of right by the mosque, but I also lived right next to this karaoke bar that was actually like a, a a massage parlor. And then, and then there was like all this (laughs) wild food and it kind of feels like New York, but it's, it was such an interesting like place to land. But, um, I really started filling my time outside of being on set, bouncing between really getting into stand-up, and then it was a really cool community to kind of. I started to put together just how important what I believed was to me because I'd always had it in the base of living at home, being pretty close to like Patterson, New Jersey, where we would kind of go for our Sunday schools, but also really see a lot of other Muslims and Arabs. But then I got to LA, and and it really hit me. Oh, cool! This is. I really am. I'm going to seek this out as well. And, and so it all starts to metabolize for me in a, in a different way. Yeah. And as I understand it, the stand up, you know, started going to the extent that maybe you weren't yet polished, but you were into it enough to, you know, on the basically, as I understood it, the, the show for Nick is shooting three weeks a month. The fourth week, you're going back to New York to do stand up. You're doing other roles that you can, I guess maybe this is after. So, so Nick runs from 2000, the show on Nick runs 2012, 2014. And then in the years after, I guess it was pretty much between stand up and these smaller parts, some of them in films like, uh, don't worry, he won't get far on foot, which people may remember. I think it was a can, wasn't it? Or one of the, it was, a, it was an art, a big art house movie. Yeah. Uh, and then, but the other one is with the other famous Rami, yeah. uh, the, you know, a recurring part on Mr. Robot. And so I guess just in that period where it's, these are not your projects, these are things you're doing and you're developing as a standup. But at a certain point, I guess you meet another former uh, past guest on this podcast, Gerard Carmichael. And I wonder if you can explain why that was important. He's another guy, I guess, that has remained in your life since then. Yeah. So, um, you know, a, a part that I, I, I kind of forgot that, that leads to this in a way, but I'm in that kind of balance between three weeks of work, one week off, I'm running back to New York, but also one of my co-stars on the Nick and Knight show is Mark Curry from Hanging with Mr. Cooper, who is a legendary standup. And I, and I remember I'm telling him, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm really starting to do it more. And, and, and he's like, really, I want to come see you. <laughs> and, 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 and he's like, where are you performing? And I'm like, I perform at Flappers in, in Burbank. It's, it's, it's far. You're not going to want to come. And he's like, Oh, I live in studio city. Yeah, I'll come. And so he shows up, he shows up in a, in a trench coat with a cigar. Like you could smell the cigar <laughs> smell and, and he kind of comes and he starts watching me and, and he's, and he's shouting tags out in the middle of my set. And, um, and I have six minutes maybe like, I don't have that much time. And then the next day my manager calls me and he's like, yeah, Mark's manager called me and he wants you to go on the road and do these dates with him. And so I, I start really, um, 
cutting my teeth, opening for him and not just opening for him, but opening up in like his rooms, which is so much different than what I've done. Like I'm doing sketch comedy again at kind of like these, um, Brooklyn-y, like liberally UCB type spots where you're getting mm-hmmms and you're getting like claps and like, you know, whatever, like all that, all this vibe. And then I walk into Mark Curry rooms and I'm like all black audiences and they um, would, you know, if you're, if you're not good in the first minute, they're like, okay, cool. We'll just talk. Like we're, they don't even, there's not even heckling. It's not even anything like that. It's just kind of like, Oh, okay. We'll just wait for Mark, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm bombing, man. Like I'm eating it, eating it, eating it, but I'm on the road and, uh, I'm so alone. I'm sitting in a hotel room and I just remember eating it one night really hard in Miami with him. And I spent the next day in the hotel room and I just wrote a new act. I was like, I can't do what I did last night. (laughs) I need to figure out how to make the jokes that I thought worked actually work. And I need to like actually talk about something. And it, and it kind of started to be like, there were some jokes I wrote in that hotel room that, ended up in my special like it, it it was really probably one of my favorite experiences opening for him and then later I um through Ari who co-created Carmichael show became friends with Gerard and like we pretty much hit it off immediately he really liked my stand-up at that time where it was at he asked me to open for him on the road for when he for his special taping all that kind of stuff and we pretty quickly kind of were feeling like I had just done all this multicam they were doing a multicam show and the original genesis of Rami was, why don't we do an Arab Muslim family to pair with the Carmichaels? That, you know, we had this kind of initial dream of let's do a block on NBC, like the Carmichaels, then the Yusufs. And uh, we started there. And then, you know, pretty quickly we realized this isn't going to serve my stand up and it isn't going to serve you know, I'd put together like a, a sheet of what character descriptions and episode ideas and whatever. And we we're kind of like, yeah, I don't know that this necessarily fits into like an ABC story on a multicam. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and anyone who's seen the show would realize that that, you know, that we certainly utilize the single cam format in, 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 um, in, in, to all its glory. But um, that that was that was a really exciting time because it, it it grew from I was doing some bit parts, but I was not a good auditioner. I remain not a good auditioner, but we knew kind of, oh, cool, there's something brewing here that, that, so, so I lived, yeah, for a couple of years, just, just solely stand up, just solely this idea that, um, you know, it could, it could pay off. Now, when you, you mentioned sitting in that hotel room, I've got to do with, while you were out with Mark Curry saying, I got to do something different. Was that thing that you sat down and wrote, was that where you started to think, all right, maybe let's get a little bit more personal and talk about some of the things in terms of my relationship with my religion and all of that, which then, cause I think the thing that you and Gerard hit it off, one of the reasons that from what I understand was that you guys are among the few people maybe in this town who are comfortable openly speaking about how you both are observantly religious with your respective faiths, right? So did that, was that the thread from Mark Curry through Gerard through coming up with this uh, initial idea of what uh, a Rami show might be? The thread with Mark in that hotel room was very much, um, I, it was more kind of this feeling coalescing in me where there would be jokes early on that I was telling that I thought were funny where I would kind of write a joke and I'd be like, oh, they're going to like this. And and there's nothing worse than that being the reason you're telling a joke and then they don't like this, you know? <laughs> like, they're, they're, like, not into it. And so I think the thing that coalesced there was this understanding I kind of made with myself, which was, if I'm going to bomb, then at least I need to believe in what I'm saying. <laughs> like, I need to believe in the joke. And the only way to believe in the joke is for me to be putting myself in like a, in a situation where I'm feeling vulnerable about something or I'm kind of sharing something. And, and so that opening, um, yeah, really solidified for me there. And it, and it kind of started to change the way I was writing. And cause, cause sketch is, is so much different than how you approach stand up. And I was still, I was writing stand up as a sketch performer. And then I, it was kind of this weird convergence of dropping some of the sketch elements having a lot of the Meisner training hit me in a certain way. And just also just the, again, the, the humiliation of bombing in front of a, um, 
a black crowd at a, at a comedy club in, in, in Miami or in Baltimore is truly will, will get anyone to change their life. <laughs> uh, so, so there's that. And then there's, I then kind of started really digging into, you know, a, a formative conversation I had with Gerard that was more me just putting out the desire. You know, we were talking about making something together pretty quickly. And I was just like, man, I really want to see God the way we think about God. I want to see God as not this cartoonish thing as not this sanitary presented for TV idea. I want to see the guilt rattling in the back of my head. I want to see the uh, desire to, to, to strive for something. I want to see faith as a verb in my world and my voice. And, and I was, at the time I was talking about how do I write that as a joke? And, and, then, and then that kind of you know, the answer came to me kind of a couple months later when I started really cracking stuff on stage um, that followed that, um, you know, that intention. So at the time you were ready to pitch a, essentially the pilot of Rami, was that where when was that chronologically? And part of the reason I ask is I wonder if it was pre or post Trump's rise, because I think we started to think maybe more about certain issues when, because of the way he was conducting himself. So I don't know. It seems like I'd just be curious when that was. Yeah, there's a period in 2015 where I kind of start talking about the show and I start kind of saying, hey, I want to do something. And, you know, I was talking to managers and stuff like that and certain people and everyone's kind of like, OK, I mean, you just came off this show that you were on and we hear you, but maybe it's like, an, you know, maybe he's a neighbor, maybe it's a best friend, you know, one is, one is Arab, one's white, you know, just kind of like everyone is, you know, to their experience, they're just like, we want to really put something together we think is actually going to sell. And I think at the time, people are thinking about it in this way of like, well, um, to make a show that is about a Muslim family, how many Muslims are there to watch it? They're kind of viewing it as like direct to consumer. We're making something just for the audience that uh, is depicted, which is um, we know now uh, not the way it works. But but even as as recently as five years ago, that is a big mindset. And so I remember kind of having that floating around. But then I remember also talking with Gerard and just we were just like, no, nah, like, we'll figure it out. Like, fuck that. Like, we can we can find a way to make this work. And so I, I kind of. I know that I got to build it out through the standup, but then, um, you know, 2016 happens. We knew right away. I mean, we had been, I'd been putting together characters and stuff, but I, we genuinely, like, I, I could probably find the screenshot, like, the night of, of that happening. And we're like, well, yeah, we're, we're going to sell the show. Like, like we're, like, writing to each other. And we're like, we're going to sell the show. And, 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 and Gerard's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And, 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 um, and not even on some, like, Again, it's not on some advantageous, like, thank you, Donald, but it's more like we already knew we needed the show. You know, like I yeah. already knew we needed the show, right. but I'm like, okay, cool. Like, so this is what it's going to take. It's like, it takes another terrible thing to happen in order for people to make a move. And, and it's why I do feel like Hollywood is, um, you know, is very corporate on that level. It's, it's a corporate America organization in terms of you know, what it takes to make something happen. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it's like Hewlett Packard or anything else. Like some crazy thing is going to have to happen in order for, for change to happen. You know, like, I was going to say, I mean, even just covering the Oscars, so white thing of the, over the last few years and all of that, you know, the, the ultimate takeaway seems to be for better or worse. I mean, people, they're like, you know, most people in Hollywood, they're not seeing black or white. They're seeing green. They want to, if they, if something can make money, they would sell their mother. And yeah. uh, so anyway, um, so you now, you sell the, or you, you make the pilot, you get the, the opportunity to make this pilot. But I, and I want to, I want to just come back to that idea of how you versus quote unquote Rami, where the difference is, because you've said, and I love this quote, I think of him as myself. But if I didn't do stand-up, we decided that the only sci-fi element of this world is there is no stand-up comedy, close quote. Can you talk more about that? Like, what does the um, absence of stand-up make this guy that, uh, mm. that it might have made you? It's the absence of passion. It's the absence of expression. It's kind of having this character be more stuck than, than me. Um, so I feel like his base issues and questions stripped back are mine. But then his next step kind of happens when you 
don't really know how to be and you don't have an outlet. And, and so we really knew right away, we don't want this dude to do stand up mostly because it's really so unrelatable. Like I, I think in wanting to create a character that people can relate to and then see a world that they thought they couldn't relate to, to make him any sort of artist felt, um, felt ridiculous. Like, like I don't think that most people in the world uh, really empathize with the grind of an open mic. You know, like, I don't think anyone cares. I, I, I really don't. And I think we, we kind of felt that right away. And so, so that, was, that was one of the earlier choices for sure. That's great. So the show gets, gets obviously, the pilot gets picked up. You do your first season. And I, I guess one of the things that's come up a lot, you know, people try to always have reference points and they say, Oh well, you know it's Louis because there's a regular guy going around and and we're seeing his ups and downs and it's not about teaching us but it's about just observing what he goes through. Then oh it's Master of None because of the second generation experience. Uh, oh it's Fleabag because of the Frank sexual stuff. I'm looking at it and I'm I'm even thinking about I, I'm an old movies buff and I'm thinking about Marty. I don't know if you ever got a chance to see. Yeah, you know where mm-hmm. it's like. What, a, guy, a guy who's sort of unlucky in love in a sense, but has his buddies to <laughs> to commiserate really <laughs> about it with. Um, were any of these things or any other things on your mind in terms of reference points as you're now sitting down with your writers to map out a first season? You know, I've never watched all of Louie because I remember seeing it and pretty quickly being like, oh, I don't want this to seep into me because I, I actually love it so much. Like, I think I can, like, like I genuinely want to watch Louie when I'm done making Rami because I, <laughs> I, 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 this, like, I, I remember really feeling that and just being like, whoa. And, 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 and so I think Louie's an inspiration in, in so much as I think he doesn't, and I, I don't know, I'm not going to say he doesn't get the credit, but I think it's, it, it needs to be noted that, you know, this is the first person really who's kind of like, I'm editing it on my laptop, you know, and it, and it kind of creates this ability for, because, you know, he had Lucky Louie and then he, and then he gets to do Louie and, and he kind of proves this is how much better it can be if the network leaves us alone, you know, and, 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 and so we benefit from that. We benefit from that infrastructure uh, as we roll into our show. We benefit from master of none we benefit from atlanta we so 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 we are like in terms of uh, just an arc an overall arc of productions of course we are you know in in lineage tied but in terms of i think what we're providing and what we're doing i think we're wholly our own thing and so i think i think when people try to say any of those things that's really what they're getting at which is like oh like this this is more in that than you know, than the link between Seinfeld and, and the Carmichael show. Right. right so, right. so, so that, that is, I think, um, we're talking more about like family trees, but, but, but wholly, I think like what we really looked at as, as reference points for us was like the graduate. That's what we yeah. talk about. You know, like we talked about the graduate. We're like, look at the way they say things with shots. I mean, I met his parents in that movie in the first frame. I didn't even see their faces. I'm seeing the back mm-hmm. of their heads and I know exactly who they are. And I'm seeing what he's going through. He's a fish out of water. I remember I would talk about this scene in The Graduate that um, blew my mind when I saw it when he's at the hotel. He's never had sex and he goes to grab a hanger and the hanger's stuck and he looks at it because he's never even been in a hotel. And like and, and, and he doesn't know that hotel hangers, <laughs> they don't let you take them off. And I'm like, that's the kind of lost I want. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just the overall predicament. It's like, what are the nuances within it? So it's not just like, oh, he's having guilt because he's having sex. He's also like trying to fill up condoms and he's also like trying to like have this, he has his weird reasoning. And I'm like, that's the kind of depth that I want. And then I think we just kind of really looked at um, landscape wise too, when we were talking about stuff where it's like, yeah, we don't want to be like full dramedy. We want to make sure we're also going for jokes. And so all these things are are really kind of um, influential for us as as we're, you know, making this. Very interesting. Well, I want to just mention a few things about the show before I ask the next question. So just in season one out of the 10 episodes, I think there's three in which the title character yourself isn't even present. There is a character who is, we've referenced them earlier in this conversation, your real life best friend who has muscular dystrophy disorder treated basically as just one of the guys, which is what you would hope in the real world. But this is not something we're used to seeing on TV. 
you're dealing with stuff like porn addiction with then Mia Khalifa shows up. You have a conversation with Bin Laden over strawberries. You have an uncle character who probably wouldn't be any more popular with Muslims or Jews, one or the other group between his various worldviews. Were any of these things, did you at any point get pushback from your partners in this, which I guess were A24 and Hulu? Was there anything where they're saying either, you know, um, structurally or in terms of content, we don't know about this, Rami? <laughs> I mean, there would be stuff that I would send in. I remember the first, you know, the the uncle get gets introduced in, in episode two of season one. And I remember sending that first outline into Hulu and I couldn't sleep. I was like, they are going to be like, why did we pick this up? I can't <laughs> believe, you know, I sent them this dialogue with this dude saying, name one Jew who died on 9-11. And I'm like, there is no way, there is yeah. no way this lands. And then we get uh, a note about the ending of the episode. And they're like, yeah, do you think just like structurally, should the scenes be flipped? And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's a great thought. Do you have any other notes? And they're like, this is great. And I'm like, you guys are out of your minds. How are you going to let this be on TV? Like, I'm actually just shocked. I'm like, how is this going to be on TV? And, and so we, we kind of are in this, um, in this exciting place where, where we're really feeling like they're letting us do what we want. But there were the pushbacks, I think, to the point that you were saying, there was definitely, hey, this show's called Rami. How are you not in the first, how are you not in three episodes in the first season? You know, like, can, can we really do that? So there'd be little things like that. There'd be like, hey, this episode is all subtitles. Like, is that really like, like, you know, this is it an English speaking uh, country? You know, there'd be some pushback on that stuff. But but I, I think in terms of just like partners, um, partnering with Hulu. I mean, A24, oh, like really like we're, we're very much always on the same page for, you know, but, and, and with Hulu really like always landing on that same page too. I, I, I gotta say, I, I'm getting to make the thing I want to make, which is really cool. That's great. Uh, I know we're in our last few minutes. I just want to ask you for one thing for sure about the response to the first season when it dropped, where you've got, I want to ask how your family responded to seeing it. I want to ask how the public, uh, including your community, I mean, I, it's a broad, the Muslim community is a very broad group like any other was I, I've, well, let me leave it at that. Your, your family and then, and then the community. Yeah, I think you make a good point. It's very broad in terms of, um, communities, right? Cause it's like, there's so many different experiences. I think there's kind of like the audience is at a huge disadvantage with a show like mine, if you're Muslim, because there is this implicit and, you know, whether it be conscious or subconscious, there's this marketing behind it where it's like, here you go. Here you go. Muslims like, here's a show. You got a show. <laughs> and, 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 and there you go. And, and I'm, you know, this show is about an Arab Muslim dude in New Jersey who jerks off too much. That's really what it's about. And if I were to really talk about what the show about, it's, it's, it's about somebody who is trying to fill that gap between who they want to be, their ideals, and who they actually are. So that's, the show is about that struggle more than it is about any one community. But it's inherently frustrating because there's such a scarcity of any stories that are attempting to show a humanizing light of this type of family, especially ones that don't sit in the context of war. So you might have some shows that are like, oh, here's a good Muslim family, but it's also like, look at the way they dealt with those bombs. You know, like, like it's like, it's, it's all kind of like framed under this umbrella of violence. So here comes a show that really doesn't have much of that, 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 that is, is, is centered around something different. It kind of sets up for a natural excitement and it sets up for a natural disappointment. And so I think the, um, responses from uh, various people in, in the Muslim communities, it has a range like anything else. And so I think like it, my show is certain, like, like I, I've heard from so many people where they're like, oh, we have a WhatsApp thread about your show. Like, oh, we have like a text thread about what went down. And oh man, my one friend is like this, but I'm defending, like it causes what I really wanted it to do, which is conversation. Cause like going back to what we were saying earlier, like what I feel like we've been robbed of is nuanced pop culture conversation where we can just talk about things that are affecting us. And I've been really excited that this show has done that. And then there's the wide spectrum between like love and hate. But, but I would say that, um, internationally, you know, we dropped season two and Rami is the top trending thing in Twitter Cairo for a week, you know, and, and, and people are eating the show up and 
Um, that's really surprised me because I, I thought there would be a lot of there are certainly detractors because of the sexual nature of it and because of, you know, the fact that we're doing things in a certain way. But so many people really, you know, respond to, to what we're doing. Well, yes. And and no, noting, obviously, that the the response has overall been tremendous. I do want to I read one quote of yours in a profile that I had to ask you about because you say I get the brunt of everything, the praise, the death threats, the condemnations to hell, close quote. Have there actually it's actually in some instances gotten bad like that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think um, I think anyone who's made something or if you're a woman, any woman will go into their inbox and find death threats and crazy things. <laughs> so so those are those are the two categories. People who make something that's trying to say something and women can enter their inbox at any point and find crazy messages and crazy things. And, and sure. So like that, of course, we've received with a show like this um, that touches on things in, in a certain way. And, and, you know, we're making something and, and, and there's so many times where I'm like, well, I mean, this scene, you know, we're either going to get an Emmy or a fatwa, but something will happen, <laughs> you know, and yeah. like, I don't know. And, and so that is this show is a tightrope walk. And, and, and that is what I like doing. That's why the show exists. It shouldn't exist in any other way. And so, yeah, it, it, it does, though, fall fall on me. And, and it's why I take such authorship over as many parts of it as I can. Because I know, and, I, and I, I've done it, I've pulled it off in stand-up in certain ways where the first time I tell a joke about something, it really falls flat. And then I really spend a lot of time crafting the words because I realize, oh, if I just leave this one word out, if I do this, this premise that genuinely had someone write me an email or had someone leave the room um, now becomes someone else's favorite premise because I got to work on it. And so that's really what we do in the show as well. And so that's been a really exciting process. And, and even with my family, like you were asking, uh, so much of my anxiety was like, oh, how am I going to show this to my parents? Like, they're such good people. <laughs> they're such good people. They don't deserve this. Um, and my strategy has mainly been keeping it from them and letting them see it just before the public does. Because I basically made a deal with my parents, which was like, look, I'm going to give you the ability to kind of tell your friends and the rest of the family that... Uh, you couldn't stop me, you know, and, and you had no <laughs> idea what was going on. I'm going to just give you deniability all the way. I don't need to stress you out with this, with this Bin Laden premise uh, six months in <laughs> advance. Just, just watch it when it comes out. And they've been, they've been really, really cool. Last question. I wonder if you can just kind of recap the last year for yourself uh, in, in the sense that I think it was in January, you, you won a Golden Globe. That was uh, quite a big deal. You had the second season come out and and receive, I think, an even better response than the first to the extent that it's now gotten some major Emmy nomination love along with great reviews. And you had Mahershala Ali, probably the most famous Muslim actor in in our industry, who's such a great guy. um, I've really enjoyed getting to know him a bit since Moonlight. And then finally, season three, I guess you were almost done with when the pandemic hit and I don't know how that's resolved. So just basically it seems like your life over this, this past year in particular may have been a bit of a whirlwind. Just take us inside your head. Yeah. So we, we finished actually the second season during pandemic. So, so we had, we had had, yeah, we had, we had three days of shooting for season two that we didn't get. And so we kind of like got real, real crafty with how we cut the season, which I'm very proud of what we did. But yeah, this is, it's been a total whirlwind because we were, even the Globes came off of a month of shooting, like, and and then I kind of ran to LA and, you know, have this amazing life changing, surreal moment. And then I think it was like 5am, 4am, that night and I'm, I got final draft open on my laptop because I have to send a rewrite because we're shooting, you know, like we're <laughs> like we're shooting and I'm like, got to fix some dialogue and like got to get that over and I got to get back to New York. And so we're we're really um, it's been very go, go, go and in, in the best ways, obviously. And then, yeah, obviously, like going through what everyone's going through with the pandemic. But on a, on a professional and personal level, super whirlwind. I mean, like the globe happened and then. A month and a half later, my grandmother passed, who I was very close to. And so, no, yeah. And so you're like processing that. And then um, then the pandemic happens. And then you're like, oh, man, thank God she passed then because it would be crazy to pass during this pandemic, you know, and and so many people are experiencing that. And so you're thankful for that. And then you're like, all right, maybe we'll be able to like 
wait this out for a month and then go get our reshoots. And then we're like, no, nah, there's no reshoots. Like, no, <laughs> that's not happening. You're going to cut what you have and you're going to edit yeah. remotely and you're going to shut up. Uh, so we, we kind of do that. And, um, then the show comes out. Um, so it's been, it's been a real, a, a real whirlwind on that level, but yeah, very, very thankful to be able to put something out, especially at these times where, um, the show starting some conversations that somehow kind of align with the globe, like the global and national conversation in a way that is kind of timely. And, 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 and I feel also timeless, uh, for better or for worse. I think a lot of these things we've been going through, we've been going through for a really long time. So, um, yeah, so I've been thankful to, to, to be part of something that myself and the, and the, my co-creators, my, my, my crew, my writers, everybody, I'm just really proud of everybody that we're able to kind of make this thing that, that I like to think, you know, if I wasn't part of it, I'd want to watch it. And that's always kind of my goal. Like, I'm like, there's, Absolutely. there's, there's over 500 shows on TV every year. <laughs> and I'm just like, we can't be disrespectful. Like we can't waste people's time. Like, like if they're going to click play on this, you know, I want it to be worth it. Oh, that's great. I, uh, can't recommend the show enough. I, it's so nice to re re meet you and, uh, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh man. Thanks so much, Scott. This is really fun. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning into awards chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free and leave us a rating on iTunes or your podcast app, as well as on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash awards chatter. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.